Well, my name is Adam. I'm part of the team here, and it's wonderful to be together today. Today, we are... That's right, I'll keep going. You can see me, I think, still, maybe. (laughs) Today, we are kicking off a a brand new eight-week sermon series called The Beatitudes, The Path to True Happiness. Now, that's a huge claim, isn't it? The path to true happiness. If that's what we're going to be talking about for the next eight weeks, then shouldn't we expect this place building to be packed for all three services? Shouldn't we expect people to, to be flocking to hear this? Because doesn't everybody want to be happy? Don't you want to be happy? Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, theologian, mathematician, uh, this is what he very famously said. He said, all men, and by that he means all people, seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. This is the motive of every action of every man. We all want to be happy. We all pursue happiness. And this is not a wrong or a misguided pursuit. After all, God wants us to be happy. God made us to be happy. But true and lasting happiness will only be found in the God who made us and loves us. And this is why we are spending eight weeks looking at the Beatitudes. Now, maybe you're wondering, what on earth is a beatitude? If you're familiar with, kind of, being part of church world for a little while, you're probably familiar with the Beatitudes. But it's not really a word that we use in daily life, is it? Now, the word beatitude comes from the Latin word beautus, which literally means blessed, or happy, or fortunate. It's the same root for our word beautiful. And so the Beatitudes are a series of sayings where Jesus explains and unpacks what it means to be truly happy, to be truly blessed, to lead a truly beautiful life. Now imagine I was to ask you, what does it mean to be truly happy, to be truly blessed, to lead a truly beautiful life? I imagine some of you would respond by saying, well, it means to be healthy, or it means to be loved, or it means to be secure, to have money in the bank, to be successful, to be at the top of your career, to be fit, to be intelligent, to be popular, to be powerful. I mean, on and on we could go, and we could probably come up with a a big list of what it means to be truly blessed, to be truly happy. Now, here's what I'm almost certain would not be on that list that we were to come up with, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be a peacemaker, to be persecuted. These aren't the things that we would normally put on our list. These aren't the things we normally ask God when we ask him to bless us. God, please bless me with meekness. If I could just be more meek, I would be happy. God, please give me the blessing of persecution. What I need more of in my life is insults. 
That's not normally on our list. And yet, when Jesus describes the path to true happiness, to true blessing, to a truly beautiful life, these are the things that he puts on his list. And it begs the question, why is Jesus' list so different to ours? Why is it so strange to our ears? Well, Jesus gives the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, which is actually the introduction to a long section of teaching, a long sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, probably Jesus' most famous ever sermon. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God. In fact, this really was Jesus' main theme. His main message. If you were to ask, well, what was Jesus you know, all about? What did he speak about? What did he teach on? The answer would be the kingdom of God. I mean, right there before uh, Matthew chapter 5, in, in chapter 4, verse 23, this is what we read. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming, what was Jesus proclaiming? The good news of the kingdom. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Well, very simply, it's the reign and rule of God. It's living under God's rule and God's blessing. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount goes on to describe. It describes what the kingdom of God is like. And this is why the Beatitudes are so strange, because what we discover in the Sermon on the Mount is that the kingdom of God is very different to our world. Different values, different priorities, different expectations. And this is why the Beatitudes sound so strange to our ears, because the Beatitudes are describing a different kingdom to what we're used to. They're describing a different way of life. They're describing life in the kingdom of God, which begins now and goes on forever. And so what Jesus is saying to us in the Beatitudes, he's not saying, if you want to be happy for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, this is how you do it. I mean, if he was doing that, he he might then say, blessed are the rich. Blessed are the powerful, blessed are the successful. Now, Jesus is saying, if you want to be happy both now and forever, if you want present joy and eternal blessing, then this is the way that you will find it. And this is why we need to pay attention to the Beatitudes. They are like the doorway into the kingdom of God. In fact, I think about the Beatitudes a little bit like the the doorway at the back of the wardrobe in The the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Sorry to use another C.S. Lewis illustration, but you know, the Pevensey children, they go into this wardrobe and they find a doorway in the back and it leads them into the magical world of, of Narnia and beyond. Well, the Beatitudes are like the entrance into the kingdom of God, a whole new world, a world of eternal joy and beauty and blessing. And so we need to pay attention to the Beatitudes. And not just some of them, but all of them. I mean, the Beatitudes, just like the fruit of the Spirit, they're not a menu that we can kind of pick and choose from. You know, I'll take peacemaking Jesus, that sounds kind of nice, but we'll just leave persecution to the side. You can give that to someone else. No, they are all, they're a totality, they're a package, they're like carriages on a train or, or pearls on a necklace, they're all part of Christian discipleship. It's the pathway that all Christians are required to walk. Not just kind of some spiritual elite, but every ordinary Christian is to pursue and practice and embody the Beatitudes. 
And the incredible promise is that if we will do that, if we will walk this pathway, then Jesus says it will lead to true blessing. It will lead us to find what we're looking for. So over the next eight weeks, we are going to dig into the Beatitudes. We're going to take them line by line and look at uh, one of them each week. And today, we're going to begin with the very first Beatitude. And it's this in verse 3. This is how Jesus begins. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus puts this one first for a reason. It's not random. It's not accidental. He puts it first intentionally because this beatitude tells us how we enter the kingdom of God. This beatitude is the gateway into the rest of them. And so right up front, in the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, in the very first sermon that Jesus gives, the Sermon on the Mount, in the very first sentence of that sermon, Jesus says, this is how you enter the kingdom of God. This is who gets into the kingdom of heaven. And who is it that Jesus says enters in? Who who is it that goes into and enters into the kingdom of God? Jesus says it is the poor in spirit. Now, don't you see right up front how different and how otherworldly this is? I mean, this is not how we naturally operate. If you want to get into a club or an organization or a university or whatever it might be, what do you have to do? You've got to show your resume. You've got to pay your fees. You've got to prove that, that you are worthy. You've got to show that you have something to offer. And yet Jesus says, when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's actually the poor that enter in. What you need is nothing. A blank resume, an empty wallet, nothing to offer. It begins by being poor in spirit. Now, this is so counterintuitive, this is so shocking to us, what we're going to do for the rest of our time together is just answer three simple questions. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Why is it so difficult to be poor in spirit? And where does it lead us? Where does it take us? What is promised to those who are poor in spirit? So number one, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it might help us to first ask the question, what does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be poor? Very simply, it means to lack resources, to lack money, to lack possessions, to lack support. It means to be unable to meet basic needs. And so when Jesus says that we need to be poor in spirit, he is saying to us that we are to recognize that we lack spiritual resources, that we are spiritually bankrupt that we're unable to meet basic spiritual needs, that our our spiritual pockets are empty, our our spiritual bank balance is nil. And it doesn't matter what your surname is, It, it, it doesn't matter what your bank balance is, what your occupation is, how educated you are, where you went to school, where you volunteer, how much you give. To be poor in spirit is to recognize I have nothing to offer God. I have nothing to impress God with. I am naked and empty-handed before him. 
this is what it means to be poor in spirit. It's to admit your poverty and it's to admit your powerlessness. Now, I'm sure that you're familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. It's a recovery program for those who are wrestling with addiction. Now, this program follows what is called the 12 Steps. 12 Steps to Recovery. Do you know what the very first step is? The very first step on the program to recovery. It's honesty. It's to admit and to say, I am powerless over my problems. And the first step into the kingdom of God is very similar. It's to admit I am powerless. I am poor. I have nothing to offer and I can do nothing for you, God. And I wonder, have you ever come to that point in your life? Have you ever come to the end of yourself? We've stopped trying to be enough. You've stopped trying to do enough. You've stopped trying to fix yourself. You've stopped trying to prove yourself. And you've said to God, God, I can't do it on my own. I don't have enough. I don't have what it takes. I desperately and utterly need your grace. I'm poor and empty-handed. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I think Jesus actually gives us the perfect illustration of what this looks like. He tells a story in Luke chapter 18, and this is how it goes. Beginning in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable, this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, a religious leader, a man of influence, and the other, a tax collector, a social outcast, a a, a reject. The Pharisee, the religious leader, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, that the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God, right in God's eyes, reconciled to God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is what poverty of spirit looks like. And I wonder, when you think about entering into God's kingdom, which of those two people perhaps most closely resemble you? God, I I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like them. At least I go to church occasionally. At least I give occasionally. Or do you stand far off, you can't even lift up your eyes and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the heart cry of the person that's poor in spirit. It's like that old hymn, which puts it perfectly. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
This is what it means to be poor in spirit. And on the surface, it sounds kind of easy, doesn't it? And I mean, in one sense it is. God has thrown the door so wide, he has brought the bar so low that anyone can enter in. All you need to bring is your need. All you need to bring are your empty hands. It's incredible. And yet, in another sense, this is not easy at all. I mean, if the bar is so low, if the door is so wide, then why aren't more people entering the kingdom of God with such joy? What is it about this that makes it so difficult for us? And this brings us to our second point. Why is it so difficult? And the answer is it's so difficult because we don't want to admit that we're poor. We don't like to admit that we're powerless, that we're empty-handed. In fact, this kind of flies in the face of, of everything we hear. It goes against the grain of everything we're told. I mean, if we were to speak broadly and generally, the dominant worldview of our day is really selfism, self-reliance, self-determination, self-help. We kind of looked at this a little bit last year in our sermon series, Half-Truths. We looked at some of those dominant cultural mantras. Do whatever makes you happy. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Be true to yourself. I mean, when you face problems in life, where are you told to turn? Look inside you. Don't doubt yourself. Believe yourself. Rely on yourself. In fact, someone I know went looking for a diary this week. They're a little bit behind. Um, But don't worry, Emma, I won't embarrass you. Now, Emma knew that I was doing this sermon, and and so she sent me a few photos of of what she found in the shops when when she went looking for a diary. There on the screen, you can see the first one. It says, point of view, focus on you. Sounds not too bad. Um, The second one, you can see, addicted to bettering myself. These are on the the front of the diary. Then the, the next one, the diary says, busy building my empire. Then I like the fourth one because it's just kind of honest. Just puts it out there. It's all about me on the front of the diary. <laughs> now, let's be honest. This is the message that kind of comes at us from every direction. And sadly, I think it even comes from within the church. There is some, church, uh, some teaching in the church today that's essentially self-help with a little bit of Jesus on top. It's teaching that elevates us and minimizes God. It's teaching that puts us at the center and kind of enlists God as our divine assistant. You know, you have a great destiny and God is going to help you to achieve it. And it resonates with us. I mean, this is why the books sell and this is why the podcasts go to number one. We, we, we like this message. But Jesus is saying to us right here in the first sentence of the first sermon in the first book of the New Testament, don't buy it, it's a false trail. Because the way into the kingdom of God is not elevating ourselves, it's emptying ourselves. Now maybe you'd say to me, Adam, surely it's not that bad. I mean, isn't it good to encourage people, to to give people confidence, give people hope? And I would say, yes, absolutely, it's a good thing. As long as our hope and our confidence are in the right place. And I think that's the real danger of selfism is that it leads us to misplace our confidence. It leads us to rely on ourselves. It leads us to put our confidence in ourselves. In fact, it leads to what one pastor I heard this week calls 
not a poverty of spirit, not being poor in spirit, but having a middle-class spirit. Now, what's a middle-class spirit? He goes on to explain. He says, a middle-class spirit says, I can do it. If I just work hard enough, if I just pray hard enough, if I just read my Bible enough, if I just give enough, I can do it. I can work my way in. I can earn it. The poor in spirit say, I can't do it. Apart from Jesus and his power and presence in me, I can do nothing. The person with a middle-class spirit, when they look at their sin, they say, well, I could do with a bit of help. I'm struggling in this area, but at least I'm not as bad as those people. At least I haven't gone that far. But the poor in spirit say, along with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? The middle class in spirit say, well, I can't go to Jesus right now. I, I can't really draw near to God. I just, I've got to fix my life up. I've got to sort myself out. I've got some things that I need to fix up first. The poor in spirit say, I will never get my life right unless I go to Jesus first. The middle class in spirit look at other people's sin and say, how could they do that? I would never do something like that. And the poor in spirit say, Jesus, if it wasn't for your grace, I would do that and much worse. On their deathbed, the middle class in spirit, they cling to the good things they've done. Say, well, I wasn't really that bad. I I did my very best. And the poor in spirit say what Martin Luther said on his deathbed, we are beggars. This is true. Or what John Newton said at the end of his life, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great saviour. That's what the poor in spirit say. And so what about you? Are you more middle class in spirit or poor in spirit? Everything is going to push us to elevate ourselves, to focus on ourselves. The kingdom of God is different. To enter the kingdom of God, we empty ourselves. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. All we need to enter God's kingdom is nothing, but to carry nothing is so hard for us to do. But as Jesus goes on to say in the second half of this verse, he says, if we are willing to empty ourselves, if we are willing to come to him with empty hands, then he will fill them with everything we could ever want or need. Which brings us to our final point. Where does it lead? What's promised to the poor in spirit? What does God give to the empty-handed? Look what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why are they blessed? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is just another way of saying the kingdom of God. It means the same thing. And notice the amazing paradox. It's only by coming empty-handed that you walk away with hands full. It's only by coming empty-handed that you are given the kingdom of God everything you could ever want or dream. And notice the tense of this blessing. You know, most of the other Beatitudes describe a blessing that we will receive in the future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But here, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we can enter into the kingdom of God right now. The kingdom of God is open to the poor in spirit right now. 
this was Jesus' message. He said earlier in Matthew chapter 4, he said, we read, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, which is another way of saying, be poor in spirit, recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, turn to God. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God can be entered into right now. The blessings, some of those blessings of God's kingdom can be enjoyed right now. Not all. There is a day coming when Jesus will return and bring the kingdom of God in its fullness. But we can enjoy a foretaste of that right now. For example, Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is now, now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you now. Forgiveness and acceptance now. And so you can begin to enjoy the blessing of belonging to God's kingdom right now. You don't have to hide from God in guilt and shame. Because God has made a way for you to draw near to him. You see, the very thing that we think means we need to run away from God, our guilt and our sin and our shame, it's actually the very thing that Christ came for. To die in our place on the cross for our sin, for our guilt, for our shame, so that we might approach God, the throne of grace, with confidence. And you see, this is why when Jesus highlights our spiritual bankruptcy right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, our emptiness, our empty-handedness. He's not doing it to embarrass us or to shame us or to condemn us. He's doing it so that we might be set free. He's doing it so that we might find the forgiveness and the hope and the life that sets us free, that gives us true and lasting and eternal joy. And this is why Jesus came. This is why he died. See, on the cross, Jesus became truly poor in spirit. He who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf. He who was in very nature God, he emptied himself so that we might be filled. He, the king, was stripped of his royal robes so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And he who was truly rich, he became poor so that by his poverty, we might become rich, truly rich. The kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. In other words, the doorway to the kingdom of God is down low. And you have to be willing to get down low to enter in, to humble yourself. But if you're willing to do that, you will find the most glorious reality on the other side. You will have your empty hands filled with every good thing for all eternity. And that's true blessing. Let me pray. Jesus, you say to us this morning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the empty-handed, the powerless, the failures, those who recognize that we have nothing to put you in our debt, nothing to offer you, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And so Lord, where we have been tempted to put our hope, to put our confidence in ourselves, we want to turn from that false trail and we want to walk the pathway that you have laid out before us, the pathway of humility and honesty and repentance. It's the only way into the kingdom and it's the only way to true and lasting joy. Less of us, Lord, more of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.